Hey, welcome listeners to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Tonight, we got another interesting show for you. Hopefully, we got a couple call-ins. I got a special guest that I'm trying to get on the air who's also got a radio show. And as usual, we're going to play some really cool, groovy music. So sit back, let's grab some gears, and uh, let's play some music and get the show on the road. That's a good oldie there. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember that song, but that was Gear Jammer by George Thorogood. Okay. Of course, it's uh, Gear Jammer the way he's describing it in the song is probably about uh, a big uh, tractor, a big rig driver. But uh, those of us that drive four speeds, four hookers, whatever you want to call them, uh, we're used to jamming gears. So at any rate, hey, uh, thanks for everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Um, you are tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And uh, hey, Lee, how are you doing tonight? Doing well. How are you? I'm pretty good. 
I'm looking forward to the next hour, aren't you? We got a, we got a cool show coming up after this one. We got a show that we're gonna. This is a pilot show that's coming up in about an hour. It's called Beach Radio, and what that show is all about. Uh, it's a little thing that we're doing to do a little promo for uh, all our friends down there in Clearwater Beach, and to let the world know that there is no oil on our beach. Okay, we got the nicest beach in the state of Florida, and I've been all over the state. And uh, so just want to let everybody know that, so you guys just pass it on. All right, back to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Uh, I got a call in calling in a little bit. Um, he's a uh, gentleman I just met not too long ago. He's got a similar show that he uh, runs down in the uh, Miami West Palm Beach area. And also, he, uh, he's, a, he's a drag racer and uh, a real car guy. So uh, when we get him on, we'll, when we get him hooked up here in a little bit, we'll uh, have him on the air. In the meantime, uh, I want to go into uh, reminding you guys a little bit about what I do. Um, I used to be in the salvage yard business. I did that for a number of years, 20, 25 years. Uh, built some cars, took a ton of them apart. And uh, so I'm still a big car enthusiast. So one of the things that I've learned over the years is, um, since most of my stuff was vintage, um, 60s, 70s cars, um, I'm very familiar with the cars, the way they should be, the way they were originally, having taken them apart. Obviously, when you take a car apart, it's been sitting for a long time. Generally, it's an original car. So uh, I do appraisals. I do pre-purchase inspections. Um, and I do overall assessments, and I do restoration consultations. So, uh, and having been in this area for a long, num- a long time, a number of years, I know a lot of the restoration shops, a lot of the body shops. And I don't really want to go into recommending anybody in particular, but what I would like to do basically is say, listen, here's the deal. I can, if you call me, and by the way, if you guys want to call tonight, uh, the number here is 441-3000. It's not a bad idea. I don't have any guests on me. On the show with me, I do have a call in that I'm expecting. He'll be on for about 15, 20 minutes. Is he on the air right now, Lee? All right. Well, let's welcome our guests, and then uh, we'll take some home phone calls after that. Is this Joe? Yes, it is. Hey, how are you? Welcome to the show. How you doing, Robert? Good to be here. Good. So uh, how's the weather down your way? Uh, it's been pretty, pretty good. Rainy a little bit during the day, but we could use it. Nice. You know, imagine that. The summer in South Florida, and it rains every once in a while. What a shock. Yeah, I know. Hey. You know, it's like in Florida. When I first moved here in 71, you could almost set your watch by one fifteen in the afternoon for about 25 minutes or so. It rained, and then the sun came out. Meanwhile, everybody was locked up in traffic trying to get back to the beach. It was hilarious. It's amazing how you go to the beach, and there's a traffic jam, and it's Tuesday at 1 o'clock, and you're wondering, don't these people have jobs? jobs. And the answer is no. No, they don't. <laughs> well, you know what? At least they're going to the beach. They're having a good time of it. So that's, that's a good thing. That's what it's all about. And uh, you don't have any oil over there, do you? Depending on what kind of oil you mean, as in oil spill or motor oil. Well, the motor oil, obviously, we have that all over the place. But as far as oil spills, you probably like us. It's nice and clean and beachy, right? Not yeah. We are actually good to go. We were very paranoid in the beginning about the loop current and what would happen to our beaches. We're very protective. I know you guys are, too, over there on the West Coast. Very protective of our beaches and our tourism. And as much as... Uh, we love cars and the car culture and all. We're going out of our way to make sure we do the right thing. And it uh, hasn't happened yet. Fortunately, the beaches are still pristine. Everything is fine. And hopefully, from what we're hearing today, they're testing that new cap, uh, containment cap on the oil leak. And so hopefully we can get that thing locked down and evade tragedy over here on the East Coast and West Coast of Florida. Well, we're all keeping our fingers crossed, that's for certain. So. At any rate, hey, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, tell us what you do in your radio show and your little bit your your car background. Uh, you know, that's what this show is all about, and I'm sure your show is too, right? Yeah, absolutely. The car culture, 
those of us who find our entertainment either working on or with or talking about cars is something that, frankly, Robert, I think is as American as apple pie. It really defines us as people, the ability to get into a car and just drive. That is American freedom right there. Uh, I started out at Miami Hollywood Speedway, a uh, local track we had here in South Florida. It was built in the 1960s. It was actually a great facility. And I uh, fell in love with drag racing early on. My dad had me at the track from the earliest days in one of those plastic little baby seats. I was out at the racetrack just getting drag racing into my blood. That's still the case now. Uh, I raced as soon as I got to be 15 years old at that same track and was spending a lot of time there and realized that my parents said, well, you know, if you're going to be at the track, you might as well try to get a job there. And I did. They needed a track announcer. I applied for the job. I was doing morning announcements at school. I figured, wow, what a great way to have fun, be at the racetrack, and do something that's not really a lot of work, like what we're doing right now, Robert. Well, yeah, you know, contrary to what people don't realize, it might sound all cool and glamorous when we're sitting on the air and we're talking back and forth, but there's a ton of preparation that goes into these shows. You know, there's research that goes in, and I'm sure you do just, I mean, your show is just, just obviously, you know, involved as well. You know, trying to line up guests, trying to do the research, trying to do the pre-interviews and stuff like that. Making sure you've got a good host on the air to keep the show informative, fun, interesting, intellectual. And, um, yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah, tell that to some guy who's digging a ditch for a living, though, and he's going to look at you like we are crazy. But I do agree. It's, it's kind of like doing homework, actually, yeah. where they say you got to do two hours at home for every hour that you're in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like just like that on the air. If you're going to do an hour show like I do every night, you got to do at least, at least two hours of preparation. Then you mentioned uh, booking guests, getting everybody on board uh, is a much more difficult thing. Well, I took my track announcing... Uh, I worked at it and made a lot of passes down the quarter mile on those Wednesday and Thursday test and tunes and got pretty good at bracket racing and really got heavily involved in local drag racing and bracket racing while all the while doing the track announcing and started to realize that people weren't beating me. I was able to do really well on the racetrack. I won a 1995 track championship at Moroso Motorsports Park and Super Pro and had some really good nights at the racetrack, but... I didn't have the kind of income that some of the other drivers had, and I thought, well, I need to focus on a career job. And one of my local racer friends got me a job working at a radio station here in South Florida, 560 QAM. So I got in the door, and as it turned out, nobody there knew anything about motorsports. And everybody, as you know, everybody that wants to walks in the radio station, 90% of them want to be on the air, and so it was like a dogfight to figure out who was going to be on the air, and I had a leg up. I was getting there just at the, the rise of Jeff Gordon. Dale Earnhardt was still with us. NASCAR marketing was really kicking into gear. And I went to the program directors and basically told them, look, this is a sport that you need to cover if you're going to be a sports radio station. They put me on the air. I created South Florida's first uh, motorsports talk show. It was called Motorsports Saturday. did that through 2004. Got hired by XM Satellite Radio, where I worked at NASCAR Radio from 2004 to 2006, then NASCAR moved their contract to Sirius, at which time we opened up our discussion to everything automobiles, uh, drag racing, IndyCar racing, Formula One, uh, and of course NASCAR, and even automotive industry discussion. That went on until 2009. Since then, I've moved my product onto the radio, or onto the internet actually, with WFORadio.com. That's how we got hooked up together. And my show airs each night. 
Monday through Thursday on WFORadio.com, and we talk cars and motorsports, and we're doing that till right now. In fact, uh, through the magic of Internet technology, I am also broadcasting as we speak on WFORadio.com. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. Shocking. That's <laughs> well. That's that's a good thing. That's technology. That's something we can. Is that something we can rig up here too someday, Lee? Get ours. Uh, get our gig here on the uh, internet because that seems to be the the place that everybody's going to nowadays. You know. I mean, well, we are streaming to, live uh, at tantalk1340.com. Pardon me. If you need to, I can set you up. Okay. Uh, side business of this whole deal, Robert, has been if you're going to go through all the trouble to develop a system to put yourself on the air in the best, easiest, most user friendly way, you might as well offer it up to some other people as well, kind of like Dick Moroso when he first started making gaskets for himself, mm-hmm. said, you know, it might be a better idea just to sell these and look at uh, Moroso performance products now. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, my cousin, uh, who's up north, and then a friend of ours also, a couple of guys, they used to do a lot of drag racing back in the late 50s and early 60s, and a couple of the guys that they raced against was the... Uh, um, uh, the people that for, that were involved with Mr. Gasket and the people that were involved in Moroso and stuff like that, and uh, they uh, they got some great stories. And you know what people don't realize is that a lot of that stuff, you know, a lot of these th- guys started out in the garage or in you know little small scale operations and stuff like that. And look how they've evolved. As a matter of fact, um, Moroso. Now, what did, what was the name of the other racetrack that you said you raced at down there in Miami area? Well, it went by many names early on: Miami Hollywood Speedway. And what about I believe it was Miami Dragway, then it was Miami Hollywood Speedway, and at the end of its days, it closed down in 1992. It was Miami Hollywood Motorsports Park. It was owned and managed by uh, Dick Moroso and the Moroso family, and following Hurricane Andrew, you remember that, right. uh, Hurricane Andrew wiped out South Florida, pretty much caused a, an exodus from the, the Kendall Homestead area, and they moved to new housing developments right by the drag strip, and ultimately the drag strip had to close down. Now there is a movie theater there, which is an unfortunate occurrence, but uh, it was a great facility, and it was very close to Miami. Miami hasn't had a drag strip that close uh, since then. Hmm. But, the, the, but the old Morosa, which, what's that? That's off uh, State Road 70 or 77 over there, just north of West Palm? Is that the one? Yeah, Beeline B- Highway over okay. in West Palm. All right, what's the name of that truck now? It's been changed. It's changed hands as well, too, correct? It's now PBIR, Palm Beach International Raceway, was taken over by a group of investors. They poured a lot of money into it and have really made it a nice facility. Uh, they're working over there very well. Jason Rittenberry used to manage Memphis, a track that's now defunct on the NHRA tour, has taken over the management there and have turned it into a real first-class facility. It's very nice. I don't get to go there as often, though, doing the radio show so so much that I don't get to race my own car, which is unfortunate. And uh, so uh, when was the last time you did some track announcing, or do you still do that? I haven't done actual track announcing in a long time. I, I often um, do track announcing for my friends when we're watching television around the house, but <laughs> <laughs> you know how that is. Oh, yeah. But not, I haven't announced a race down the track in, I don't know, 10 years. It would have to be. Did the, uh, so now the Morosa, or it's called uh, Palm Beach International Raceway. Now, they, they, when, when I remember that track, and I haven't been there in, geez, I'll bet 10 years or so, or maybe it's less than that, five years, I'm not sure, but it's been a while. At, uh, at any rate, we used to go down there, because I was a member of HSR, so we used to do the uh, uh, vintage races down there. 
And I know they had a small road course, which really was kind of like a big giant teardrop. I mean, you went straight down one side, down the racetrack, and then you had the big uh, concentric circle at the end. Then you came back on the shutdown lane. Then you made a hairpin turn at the other at the top of the track, and and that's pretty much how the track was. But they had like uh, they set up some cones and they created like a little chicane for us there, um, like they do in in, in the uh, uh, Le Mans races. And um, so I heard that that's all been redone now, and they're still having. Uh, drag racing as well as road racing down there, correct? That is correct. The, the difference is, is back when you were there, and I spent some time on the road course as well, uh, I got to go to the Justin Bell GT driving school that they had there, and so I, I made some laps around that track. It's now totally different. Back then, if you were on the road course, nobody could be on the drag strip. They were kind of using the same property right. at the same time. Mm-hmm. I remember we would have to sit outside until those road course guys got finished with their craft now, you've got road course racing, you can have drag racing, go-kart racing, all happening at the same time. That was part of the big renew, and everything is different. You wouldn't recognize anything of that racetrack, except for the old tower, which is still in the middle of the track. The drag strip is in the same spot, but everything else is pretty much different. So the whole drag strip's in resurface, and then the road courses, what did they do? Did they move it over and then clear out some of that property back there? Is that what they did? Yes, they did. It's uh, There's, I'm sure, a couple of corners that are similar, but the entire layout of the, of the road course is different. Now, I haven't driven it, so I can't really give you an explanation had I been on the track exactly what kind of a course it is, but it is all to the left. It is all to the left, whereas the previous road course, when I say to the left, if I'm standing on the starting line at the drag strip, previously you had some road course to your right, some yes. road course to your left, right. some road course behind you, and of course at the top end of the racetrack. No longer, everything is now on one side of the drag strip. And the road course guys seem to like it. It is a bit of a freak out, though, when you're zooming down the quarter mile and you see a you know, Mini Cooper or a Miata come zooming the other way on the road course, it'll catch your eye and get your attention. <laughs> I can imagine. So in other words, the back of the track over where the concession stands used to be back there, that's where the road course is now, which is where the old pit area used to be. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Did you ever go there for any of the – I know we used to go there also for, like, the Super Chevy, the Fun Ford, and I think they had one or two Mopar shows down there, too, big car show swap meets. and you Absolutely. Know. I hit as many of those as possible. Uh, back I, – I figure I used to race between 1990 and 1998 every weekend – either at Miami Hollywood or Moroso Motorsports Park. Every big event that they had, I was uh, there in some capacity. And then 97, 98 started to slow down, stopped running points. You know, they offer points for Super Pro and bracket classes and just uh, focused on work and profession. And as with anything, if you take a step out, it's very difficult to get going again. Oh, yeah. So tell us a little bit about the car you used to race and the class you raced in back then. Well, the car is a 1978 Pontiac Trans Am. Uh, it was bought by my father, brand new in 1978. It's like a Smokey and the Bandit, except it's white. Uh, we turned that into a half-chassis, four-link race car in the early 90s and just started bracket racing it. It's funny because now I've got this great bracket race car that is not usable really on the street. That would be just a perfect car. It's all steel. It has been in the centerfold of popular Hot Rodding magazine, a couple of years back when they had their 25th anniversary of the Trans Am edition, we were fortunate enough to be the centerfold photograph of that magazine. High Performance Pontiac uh, also did a spread on the car. And what was the interesting point about it 
was we were out there racing it, and the car looked great and all. We also won the NHRA Division II Best Appearing Car at the bracket finals a couple of years back. But it was a Pontiac engine, which is a very rare thing when you're out there racing. Everybody has a big block Chevrolet. First thing they want to do is pull the 400 or 455 Pontiac out of that thing, make a boat anchor out of it, and put a big block Chevrolet in there. And we kind of wanted to keep everything Pontiac. And so that was what was unique about the car. It's pearl white with candy apple red stripes and is still in perfect condition, sitting in mothballs in the garage, begging to go racing. Just hasn't quite been there in a while. So was that car originally an automatic car or was it a four-speed car? It had a, a turbo 350. Okay. And then what engine did you have in yours? Originally, it was a 400 Pontiac which we, because at the time you could get it with the 403 Olds as well, we had the 400 Pontiac, which was nice. And we ran it about down into the 1250-second elapsed time zone, changed the camshaft, changed the cylinder heads to some early Ram Air heads, and got it going pretty well, but eventually uh, one of our original cast pistons broke, and the thing grenaded, done blowed up, and so we started building a new engine, and it's weird how it goes, Robert, when you start building something, and the next thing you know, you've got a, you've got a flat tappet cam, and it becomes a roller cam, and that next thing you know, you've got a lot more invested in it than the chassis can handle, which prompted our chassis work. Uh, we ended up with a 462 Pontiac, 30 over 455, and roller cam, uh, chrome crankshaft, uh, Crower rods, Vanolia pistons, base 13 to 1 compression. We put that coupled with a Power Glide transmission uh, and a 12 volt Chevrolet rear end. And the car ran low tens for years. Very consistent, deadly on the, on the track in terms of consistency. And just had so much fun with that car. Stock interior, both seats, carpeted, original dash, all the glass, working stereo. Everything was as the factory wanted it, uh, right from the front seats forward. And that's how the car sits to this day. You know, that sounds like a lot of uh, those stories are so uh, reminiscent for me because, you know, back in the day when everybody used to street race, that's the first thing you did. Well, you know, you went to the speed shop, you bought an air cleaner, and you bought a valve cover, and then you, you know, uh, you, you, you wiped a lobe out on the camshaft. So then you went from a hydraulic because you wanted to put another hydraulic in, but somebody talked you into putting solids in it. So then you had to learn how to adjust mechanical lifters, and then, uh, well, you know, you had you know, so now you got the thump and the rump, you know, but you still don't have enough, you know, oomph in the thing. So then somebody says, well, you know what? Maybe you had to consider changing your cast pistons because they'll fly apart on you. Put some, you know, aluminum ca- aluminum forged pistons in it, and uh, oh yeah, by the way, since we had gas back then, how about some compression? Because compression makes power, obviously. You know, and then of course, then you figure, well, you know, now you're out there running. You say, well, you know, if you had a little bit more gear, you know, you could do a little bit better. So next thing you know, you you run uh, like I used to run. And I had a 72 Ranchero GT back in the day, and it was a factory 351 Cobra Jet car. And uh, so out of the box, and I remember that car when I used to walk home from school. I used to, um, sometimes if I'd missed a bus, I'd have to hitchhike. So the car would be sitting on the showroom floor at Walker Ford. And then a year later, long story short, I wound up with that car. But it was an automatic um, Cobra Jet car factory deal. But I ended up going to Ford, bought Boss 351 heads across the counter, bought the Boss 351 intake across the counter, bought the Boss crank across the counter. You could buy all that stuff back in the day. This is in the 70s now, of course. And uh, next thing I know, you know, I got 411 gears in it, went up from 325s. Uh, that wasn't enough, you know, and I need a little bit more. Then I was running 514 gears on the street. So you Whoa. can imagine that. Yeah, 514 on the street. The truck weighed with me in it and half a tank of fuel. 
Um, I weighed about uh, 3,900 pounds. I got that car on the street, uh, capped up with street tires. I could run, I could run about a high 12s. And uh, but you know, it took gear, it took gears to do it. You know, and gas miles. Of course, gas of that in those days was uh, you know 40. 30, 40 cents, you know, it wasn't a lot. And you could pull up to the pump and you could get Sunoco 260, you know, which was a little over 100 octane, you know. And um, and I remember my cousin used to live in Venice, so I would drive down to Venice and visit him. I mean, at 35 miles an hour, I was tacking out 5,500 RPM, so that just didn't work out too well. I now, was, what what is the modern era equivalent of that? Think about this. I, I often spend a lot of time thinking about the – you talk about these generational changes, and I know you do a lot of nostalgia stuff – the generational changes. I, I thought about and wanted to work on cars. Nowadays, and I'm only 37 years old. I say only because I don't consider myself old anyway. Uh, we do all of our stuff on the Internet. We have an iPhone application for WFO radio. We're very tech-savvy, and that's how I know that young people today, they're not putting a new camshaft in their car. They're updating the RAM on their computer. They're getting a bigger hard drive. It's like, hey, Mike, man, I got a new RAM, and it's uh, got the processor speed of this, and I got a hard drive that's huge. It's so funny how the world has changed that kids now, instead of working on their cars or doing something with their hands, they're updating their gadget or making their processor speed faster. Yeah, they're sitting there with a laptop. I mean, like my Ranchero. So I, had, I was running 514 gears, converted from an automatic to a four-speed because I had to have a stick, and 12.5 to 1 compression. You couldn't drive that car today on the street. And then I had to sacrifice my air conditioning, sacrifice my uh, uh, my radio. I ran, uh, uh, what, in those days, I ran what they called header mufflers, which were right off the headers, the collectors. I had short, sure. stubby little mufflers. As a matter of fact, they were called purple hornies. It's kind of a big joke, but they're actually bringing those back. And uh, so here I got the, you know, my dump tubes are right underneath the front seat. So you couldn't hear yourself. You couldn't do anything in that truck. Or the, yeah, it was a truck, basically. And uh, it was just, it was ridiculous. So you had to have a second car. Today, just like you said, the kids can walk out there with their laptop, get certain software, change a few things, mess with the mass airflow, uh, change uh, just a few little things with the computer, bolt on a handful of little items. And uh, the guys are running 10 seconds. They're actually, a lot of these cars are 12 seconds out of the box. Out of the box. Yeah. Right from the factory. And got to give it up to them. That's the way to go. Uh, no offense, but I'm not sacrificing my air conditioning for anything anymore. Well, while we're on the subject of uh, high-tech cars, tell us about your other little weekend toy. Which is my, uh, my personal driver. I, I do an auto review column uh, over here uh, in our Deerfield Beach Observer where I review cars. And after a run of many cars that were nothing special to me, I, I came across a Cadillac CTSV, and I got in the car, and I thought, wow, the next time I buy a car, this is going to be it. I'm going to buy a Cadillac CTSV. I drove the 2004, had the 406-horse uh, LS6 engine in it with the six-speed, and I thought, wow, it's a Corvette, but it's not. It's a Cadillac. It's a Corvette shaped like a Cadillac that I can carry my friends around. So I uh, saved my money, my years working at uh, on the radio at XM, and got the opportunity, searched one out, found it, Actually, over there on the West Coast in Naples at Val Ward Cadillac, black with the black graphite interior, jumped on the thing. It had 4,000 miles on it, and it is by far the best car I've ever had. And I've loved all my cars. I don't buy cars that I do not like. My previous car before that was a 95 Pontiac Trans Am. Remember being a Pontiac guy. Uh, this was before the introduction of the G8 which I would have most certainly gotten had it existed at this time, but I ended up getting the CTSV, which I still own, and love it. The CTSV 
to this day, they've already moved on. There's a new evolution of it. The new CTS is a better car. It's a nicer car. The CTS-V has got 150 more horsepower than mine has. But this car is going to go down in history as one of the cars that brought Cadillac back. When Cadillac made a statement that said to, them, to themselves and, and the world, yeah, we're not just luxurious, squishy cars for folks in their 50s through 70s. We make cars that can take on the Germans, that can take on the Germans on the Nordschleife at the Nürburgring, and are performance cars. They only make 2000 a year, and I felt Cadillac and General Motors needed to be rewarded for that kind of foresight and effort. So I went out and got one and love it. Now, I do have a complaint, though. Okay. The tires do not last nearly long enough. Let me guess. Uh, the rears, right? Well, everybody. <laughs> everybody. It, I guess when you put uh, F1 supercar tires by Goodyear on a, whatever it is, 3,800-pound car with a 400-horsepower engine, and you say it can handle, and people who drive it, they try their best to make it handle, and it does, you're going to cut through some shoes. And that's, that's what's happening over here. So what's the horsepower on the one you have? 406. Yeah, that's still plenty. You know, if you think about it, um, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm sure you being a Pontiac guy, you're probably not happy with the idea that Pontiac discontinued, or GM discontinued Pontiac. It's no terrible. Then I'm a little disappointed that Ford discontinued Mercury. But, you know, there was production overlaps, and a lot of that stuff they didn't take into consideration, so it's kind of like, oh, this is what happens. But nonetheless, uh, my hat's actually off, and I'm a Ford guy, but I have a tremendous amount of respect for Cadillac because what they've done, they've got after, just like you mentioned, they went after the BMW market, they went after the the uh, upscale, let's uh, who else is out there, BMW, you've got Mercedes and their E-Class, you know, you've got some of the Lexus, they got some hot rods out there, you know, Infinity's got a hot rod out there, and all these cars are in that same class. Well, even though Chevrolet was kind of, you know, going through their little motions there, and they didn't really come up with anything that was really cool, Cadillac is the car, and the Cadillac name and the Cadillac brand is the only one that GM had in their pocket, basically, that could go after the high-end cars, the BMW M5, you know, the E55 Mercedes, and uh, the the Lexus and the Infiniti. I'm not real up on the Japanese cars, but, you know, and they're essentially Toyotas and Datsuns, in my opinion, still, but, you know, they rebadged them. As far as pedigree, you know, Porsche's still a pedigree, BMW's still pedigreed, you know, Mercedes is still a pedigree, or was, when they got mixed up with Chrysler, it got diluted a little bit, but they're back to, you know, a pedigree car again. And then Cadillac, and Cadillac's top of the line. Cadillac is GM's hot rod, and and that's a good thing. And and uh, I don't know if you have these those shows over there where you're at, but we have these little get-togethers that are uh, called Coffee and Cars. As a matter of fact, there's one this weekend at the DuPont Registry, and it's every third Saturday of the month. So for you listeners out there, and again, you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're Wednesdays at the Tan Talk Radio Network at 7 p.m. I've got a very special guest with us tonight. His name's uh, Joe, and uh, he's out of Miami, and he's got a uh, I guess, are you Miami or West Palm Beach? I'm actually in the uh, Fort Lauderdale, Pembroke Pines area of South Florida, but we're, you know, we're close to everything. Okay. Well, at any rate, um, so, uh, so we're just uh, talking about car stuff here right now, so if you just tuned in. Nonetheless, um, so the, the, they, they finally have, you know, cars out there that, that, you know, Cadillac's got a car out there that can compete on the world market, and that's a great thing, you know. And, um, but like I said, that's their, that's their hot rod now. And just like you said, it's evolved into another car. But going back to these uh, coffee and cars shows that they have every third Saturday of the month, 
Uh, we have an average of, I would say, 200, 200 plus cars that show up, sometimes 300 people plus that show up at these events. And we've got everything from Hot Rod Cadillacs, we've got Mercedes, BMWs, Porsches, Aston Martins, Jaguars, we've got muscle cars, we've got 55, 56, 57 Chevrolets, 5, 6, and 7 Thunderbirds, we've got Austin Healy's, we've got MGA's, we've got Vintage Porsche 356's. Um, we got uh, the Honda Club shows up there. The Mazda Club shows up there. I mean, it's a really, really neat, eclectic uh, group of people that show up. And they look forward to it every week uh, or every month, I should say. And, well, and, then, and then there's spinoffs of that. I mean, do you guys have something like that going on down your way? Because you you're a big car mecca down there. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. We've got a, a place right over here on 595 and University Drive. If you come across the alley, just keep on going straight. You'll end up on 595 and then University Drive pretty quickly. On Friday night, it's called the Tower Shops, and it's one of the largest weekly gatherings in the entire country, like top ten. And you're liable to see anything at any time uh, over there, clubs, groups. Uh, I'm not too into the – I appreciate the German engineering, but I'm not too into the automobiles of the Axis powers, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, I'm very happy with the uh, the Cadillacs and the American cars. I really wish more people were into it. I was just checking that Jeep commercial out. Have you seen the Jeep commercial, Robert? You know what? Is that the one where they talk about it's American-made and it goes back? We and, build and, and, things. Yes, we exactly. Things. And and that country that builds. Yes, that needs to be echoed. Lee, you're you're all for that. Let's make it in America, right, Lee? Yeah, sounds good to me. <laughs> sounds good to you. <laughs> He's Lee's, Lee's from Detroit. He's our uh, production manager over here. And uh, he's kind of a car guy, but he's not, he's not obsessed with it like I am. The Woodward Dream Cruise. As a matter of fact, that's coming up in a couple of weeks. And uh, one of the guests that we're going to have on in a couple of weeks, actually, he was going to come on next week, but I told him, I said, I'll tell you what, go ahead and go to the Woodward Dream Cruise, and when you come back, you can give us a full report. So he's going to do that for us. And, Everything. Uh, actually, uh, on the Cadillac subject, on WFORadio.com right now on the front page, uh, we were fortunate enough to get a half hour with... Jim Verpilat, who is the global director of marketing for the Cadillac brand at General Motors. We did a sit-down, and I grilled him a myriad of questions for people that are interested uh, in Cadillac. He lays it all out, their global strategy, what they feel about their product, who they want to compete with, whether whether or not they're going to offer uh, left-hand steer cars or right-hand steer cars, rather, over in Europe. Uh, all of these things, and the guy was very, very aggressive and uh, and bullish on the future of Cadillac. Cadillac is growing out of control in China right now, and uh, they've got really good things planned for Cadillac. It's actually a very exciting. It's an exciting time for American car manufacturers because I think the worst is behind them. I know some people have a problem with the government bailout, so they, so to speak, but it, it's not good to have to have that happen. But the alternative. No General Motors or General Motors that doesn't resemble what we have now. I, I don't feel comfortable with that. I'm actually pretty happy with what we've got right now. And it seems that these manufacturers, look at Chrysler with that Jeep. That is such an exciting commercial. I hope it's true, and I hope the product is good, most importantly. <laughs> what if they put a commercial out like that and the product isn't good? Someone's going to have to give us a review. But people want American-made things right now. People are starting to realize why a Lexus? I've driven them. They're nice, but are they nicer than a Cadillac? Are they nice? No, they're not nicer than a Cadillac or a Lincoln, by the way, since you're a Ford guy. They are um, a marketing exercise. That fancy L was put through thousands of hours of research to find out what T 
titillated the car-buying audience in a perfect way, and that's what they came up with. They're benefiting from being newer. After World War II, we, were, we continued on our trend. They started from scratch. They built everything from scratch. We taught them what to do with the Marshall Plan, and, of course, they built some better cars and newer factories with different people. It's time for Americans to realize that the American cars nowadays are just as good, if not better, just as stylish, if not better, get just as good mileage, if not better, depending on what you're looking for. And it's time to uh, go to the Ford dealership or go to the Chevrolet dealership or go to the Jeep and the Chrysler dealership and pick up an American car. It, it will be helpful, even if some of them are built uh, outside of the country in Mexico and Canada. The corporations are here, and that's a big deal. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. You know, you talk about the Lexus and the Infiniti. If you pop the hood open, and, and my, for I don't know if you know this, but I used to be in the salvage yard business. So for for the last twenty some odd years, or just a little bit before that, I, de- I you know I took a number of cars apart as, or I had my crew do it. But you know, when you when you go out there, and um, you know, you're talking about. Lexus, for example, and you pop the hood up on the Lexus, it's got a big stamp under the hood for all you Lexus owners. It says Toyota on every piece of sheet metal on that car. If you pop the hood open on Affinity, it says Nissan Motors or Nissan. And so, you know, that's what I was talking about earlier about the pedigree. And, and getting back to American, you know, I think the mood, um, if, and, I'll, and I'll go back and reflect a little bit in the late 80s when Ford came out with the Taurus, that was the first car that they had that was kind of somewhat changing the typical way that we looked at, you know, with the big ugly bumpers and the big boxy square cars. Um, that's kind of when we kind of ma- started making that transition. So the Taurus was kind of like the first car that kind of went in that direction. And then if you notice, from 1990 onward, the cars started to get a little bit more refined. Now, and a little bit more, you know, quality control was a little bit more uh, noticeable. The um, 80s were terrible, and I would be remiss if I didn't openly admit to everybody listening that the decade of the 80s was not a good one for American automobiles. Mm-hmm. Well, but the thing is, is that and the, the bad thing is, yeah, we made some pretty bad cars. The good thing is, is push came to shove, and in the 90s, we really started getting our act together, started building better and better cars. And just like you mentioned, you know, you referred to uh, the situation that happened here with General Motors taking over uh, or being taken over by the government and stuff like that. Well, what that did is it took all those uh, pencil pushers and basically put them in a the room and said, look, we got to sit there and look at this whole scenario here, otherwise we're going down the tubes. So consequently, what they did is they finally got smart, cut out all the fat, and said, all right, well, we need to stop overlapping markets, we need to narrow the markets down. Maybe there's a few other things they could have done. Like, I'm not exactly excited that they did away with Pontiac or Oldsmobile. I think what they could have done is they could have had one or two cars, at least retain the badge name. Because, exactly. You know, exactly. So, they should have done it. The Solstice. Have you, have you driven that Solstice uh, Roadster uh, they had? I drove that car, and then the Saturn was the very same car, basically. And I was impressed. For a little car in that price range, it was a great handling, great running little car. I mean, it's, you know, it's a little anemic in the power department, but for what it was, I thought it was a great car. And it's an American venture. That's the best part about it. Bob Lutz, he he sketched that out. He wanted those bumps behind the driver's compartment. I drove the the regular with the convertible top, but I also got to drive the coupe, and the coupe was the GXP version, so it actually had some horsepower. The the standard one was anemic. The GXP was, was great, and I first got in it, and I thought, wow, this is pretty good. By the end of my week with the car, I was in love with it. A couple weeks later, I drove the G8 Pontiac, which... You know, who knew? It's a big car. It's made by Holden in Australia. They rebadge it. Uh, but that's what they drive in the Australian V8 supercar series. Yes. So the Holdens and, and Commodores and whatnot. Uh, this is a Holden Monero. 
un- or I'm sorry, this was a Holden Commodore. The GTO was a Holden Monero. It is a great car. It's a BMW M5 for twenty thousand dollars less. But some people just oh, I don't I don't want a Pontiac because I don't I don't uh, get to brag to my friends that I drive a BMW. Uh, I know. Hey, hang on a second, Joe. I think we got a caller here. Lee, we got somebody who wants to call in and chime in. Hello there. Who's this? Hey, Robert. It's Dan. Hey, Dan. How you doing? Joe, Not can you bad. Hear? I was listening to your show earlier, and you were talking about dragsters. I'm going to bring you down, down, get away from these solstices and all that stuff. <laughs> I'm going to go down to real cars. Okay. I'm going to tell you a drag race story. Okay, go ahead. All right. Back in uh, 54, uh, I had a friend by the name of Ted Beetle, and Ted was a farmer up in Illinois, and he built a car in his chicken coop, and was called we called it uh, the uh, hay shaker. And the chickens would roost on it at night, and it had a, uh, uh, a 41 Cadillac truck frame with a V12 Cadillac flathead motor uh, and a bench seat with with the steering coming straight up. You know, st- steering just a, you, you saw the steering column and the steering wheel. That was it. No seat belts, no nothing. At, and we raced it at Union Grove, Wisconsin, and. Uh, it turned about 96 miles an hour back then. Had 820 tires on the on the rear and 616s on the front. And uh, it was one of the first dragsters up in in northern Illinois area. And is that car to be found anywhere? Oh, yeah, I doubt it. I doubt it. I don't think so. But further on, he built another car that was a Pontiac Power uh, with a 671 blower on it. And he came over to the shop because we were sponsoring the car. So I came over to my shop, Customotive, and we put the uh, uh, car together. We built the frame and the body and everything, and, and so Ted built the engine, and he was putting the uh, pistons in the engine, and they were so tight that he had to press them in there with a 2x4 that was propped against the wall, and when the engine got together, it wouldn't turn over. So he said <laughs> he wanted to race that day, so we Sunday morning we hooked it behind the car, and headed for Union Grove, Wisconsin. It was about 25 miles away. And he would be behind the car, popping the clutch the whole way. And finally, when we got within a mile of the, of the track, it started turning over. And he turned 189 flat. 189? 180 in 9 flat. Oh, 180. In, oh, no, well, that's flying. Yeah, it, yeah, that was in, uh, let's see, that must have been in 1958, 57, 58. Joe, you still there? Of course. What do you I think love it. For? I love hey, you it. Know we talk drag you... racing on Tuesday nights on our show. Garlitz, Muldowney, Don the Snake, they've all been on. You, do you know, you know Greek uh, Carmen, uh, uh, Chris Carmasini's? Chris Carmasini's, Mr. 201. Yeah, 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 the Chisler. Yeah. Yeah, Chris is a good friend of mine. Chris is still out there doing it. He's up in Chicago, yeah. You know, one day, one day he had a guy working for him by the name of Hamburger. And the guy was traveling the car from Chicago to wherever he was going, and he rolled the whole rig over. And he called Greek up, and he said, Greek, he said, I just rolled the car over. I'm leaving town. <laughs> <laughs> he says, if you, if you leave now, he says, I'm really going to kill you. <laughs> so, so they put the car back together, and Greek's a hell of a guy. We used to have so much fun when he came out to California and visit me. I yeah. think everybody is... is looking at the way things are right now, and they think about these guys, like, like the caller just mentioned, he built it in a barn. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. How great was that, that you could go out and have the resources, yeah. tinker, and make something by yourself? Yeah, and, and you know, he's, he's just, he was a 
professional welder uh, by trade, but he built engines also, but he lived on a farm. So he built it in a chicken coop, and the chickens would crap all over the car during the week, and, and it had the hay shaker on the side of it. <laughs> and he would run that thing once a week, boy. He'd have such a good time. But every time it, uh, the blower coughed, it cost me $16 for a new Gilmer belt. <laughs> wow. Talk about breaking the bank. Yeah, yeah. Well, back then, you could break it for $16. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting when you get back to that. I mean, you look at the, you know, like Dan, you know, Dan's, you got a, a day or two on me, and then I got a couple days on uh, on you, Joe, there. And, you know, it's look at the evolution. So when Dan, when I was still uh, in diapers, you know, Dan was out there dry racing, having a good time. And then, you know, when uh, when you were running around in, on your bicycle, you know, I was out there street racing, tearing up the place. And and now here you are, you know, with the high tech stuff and all of that. So it's just, but the neat thing about it is, is that each generation can still relate to the cars. We still got the same stories, and fundamentally, we're all on the same page. And oh, what's yeah. really neat is the, the fact that you know, ten years from now, who know? I don't know what's going to happen in ten years. I don't think anybody really knows, you know. But I know that cars are really going to evolve, uh, you know. And then who knows what we're going to have for fuels in the future and and stuff like that. But the fact that the, that the spirit is still alive, that people, that we're kind of still passing this this uh, nostalgia craze on, that we're passing on this whole craze with the automotive, uh, you know, cars, whether it be drag racing, road racing, sports racing, or just a plain good old car enthusiast that just likes, you know, a late model car. I mean, that's great. I mean, you can see it right now. It's reflected in the industry in general. You know, we got the Camaro back. We got the Mustang back. We got the uh, the Challenger back, and cars are going after that retro look. I mean, people, if you look at the marketing end of it, you know, who are they catering to? They're catering to the guys that are our age, a little bit older, and uh, and 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 they can identify with these old the the old style cars. But we got a modern day version, and now our kids and our nieces and our nephews are starting to take an interest because they're influenced by us. So hopefully that will just continue on and keep influ- it'll proliferate. You know, you know, you know. Uh, uh, th- the, the General Motors and all their car companies, you know where they get all their new ideas? From customizers and car builders and guys that are in their uh, garage at home, coming up with ideas that they evolve into their ideas, you know. Nobody gets paid for them. Now, now for instance, square headlights came out on American cars in 1972. In 1965, we built a car for Harry Bradley, who was the, uh, the dean of uh, uh, the... Uh, College of Design in Pacific College of Design in California, and he's the one that built the the Wiener mobiles. Oh, really? Yeah, and and we built a car for Harry in in 1965, a brand new Mustang, and we put square headlights in it. Well, they didn't come out with square headlights till 1972. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that the Sunny and Share car. Remember when you worked at Jerry's right, Bears? Right, they that had, was sure they had square headlights. They had square huh? And you know where you know where the first square headlights really appeared, and then they had like an oval oblong. The foreign cars, your European. Absolutely, bu- we, we, we got the lights from France. They were called CBs. Yeah, CBAs, and then mm-hmm. they had and the Man buses and the Deutz buses right. and all those European buses had those because light technology, quartz halogen headlights, the te- light lighting technology was like twenty years ahead of ours. We're still right. using seal beams right. in the late eighties, early. 90s. 90s. As a matter of mm-hmm. fact, today we don't really have much better than that, other mm-hmm. than you know the stuff we got from the Europeans. Again, right? Um, uh, you know, now we, we finally have disc z- brakes. We got disc brakes. Yeah. Well, you know yeah. what? I, I, was, we, I had a discussion with somebody not too long ago. What What was the first car that had disc brakes? But I think it was some British car that had first had that back in the uh, uh, mid 50s. Sometimes, you know. Oh, you know, I think they probably had them before that. Somebody had them on their on their cars. Uh, I mean. Probably in the 40s. I'm going to guess 40s somebody was developing that. They were ahead of us in technology, but not in philosophy. We always had a great philosophy. We, you know, more power is better. That's us. Yeah. That's yeah. it. 
Well, you know, and uh, hey, guys, I just got the, the uh, five-minute warning here. But real quickly, you know, when you look at the technology that we have today, just, just food for thought real quick. In 1921-22, Ferdinand Porsche, okay, he developed uh, a porcelain engine, okay, and, and ceramic uh, internals. Now, all this technology was developed way back then, or the concept was, but it wasn't until today or in the last three to five years that we have the ability to mass-produce these these really high-tech um, materials and incorporate right. them into engines and engineering and stuff like that because now we can get the cost down to where it makes economic sense where we can do all this stuff. It's the same thing with battery technology. They had battery-powered vehicles back in the 30, 20s and 30s, mm-hmm. actually before that, but the, tech, the battery technology, and this is what's interesting because, you know, uh, Joe, you being a GM guy and everything like that, you know, the Chevy Volt and stuff like that coming out, it's sure. a great idea, it's a great car, but if they don't get the battery technology to come up with the en- the, the motor technology, we're still going to have an issue there because it's it's a question of economics and feasibility, you know? Yeah, I, I'm excited about the Volt, though. I think that uh, they're going to make the mark where others, like that Nissan Leaf, yeah. is going to miss the mark because, uh, again, inherently American, you need to be able to get in your car and drive from here to California at any time. That's right. That's America. You've mm-hmm. got to be able to do that. And yep. the Nissan Leaf and a lot of these other recharge cars, you can't do that. The Volt, you can. Yeah. Oh, you can with the Volt? Yes. Okay. Now, I don't, I, I'll have to apologize. I'm not really up on that car. I know a little bit about it. Uh, a couple of guys have talked about it. And, 40 uh, miles, no emissions, battery only. After 40 miles, an electric gas-powered generator kicks on and powers the electrical engines, or the electrical motors, I should say. Mm-hmm. So eventually, you'll have to put some gas in the tank to power the generator, but you can keep on going. Wow. There is no, oh, that's it, I'm out of battery, I guess I'm stuck here on the side of the road. That and, will not happen with the Volt. You can and, keep and going. And don't forget, we still have a lot of steam aficionados out there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, guys, I want to thank everybody for uh, jo- coming on the radio here. Dan, thanks for calling in. Uh, yeah, Joe. Robert, I'll catch up with you later, buddy. Okay, and uh, Joe, I want to thank you. Well, we got, we got, how much time we got left, Lee? Is Le- Al, you're on the phone real quick? Joe, you're still there, right? Yes. Okay, go ahead and let Al talk real quick. This is another one of our callers that calls in from time to time. Real smart guy, real car guy. Al? Hey, Robert, how are you doing? Pretty good. Thanks for calling in. What do you got? Yeah. Okay, yeah, we're talking about the disagreement. Jag used them back in racing back in the 50s, but they had pad kickback. And then you come up to the turn, you have to pump the brake a few times to get the pedal back up. Okay, there we go. (laughs) Chrysler experimented with them in the 50s, but the first application was 63.5 Thunderbird. Had them for an option. Up front. On Thunderbird. But the, but originally it was designed by the Europeans, though, right? Of course, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, uh, Joe. Just... Also, yeah, the Baker Electric back over 100 years ago, too. Okay. Electric cars, yeah. yeah. Well, that's true. Okay. Anyway, uh, Joe, this is Al. Al's one of our yeah, – he actually sits in with me on the show every once in a while. He's kind of like our – I'm full of grease right now. He's, he, he would have been here, yeah, but he's, he's working on some uh, British I'm cars. filling so. in for you, Al. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, you can talk. <laughs> yeah, you're very good. <laughs> All right, Al. Thanks for calling in, Joe. Okay. I got to go because we got. But I definitely would love to have you on again. Would that Would that work for you? If you no like, problem. No problem. And in the meantime, if uh, people want to check out the car or otherwise, wforadio.com. We've got an iPhone application, so you can listen that way anytime. Robert, you just let me know. I'd love to come on and talk uh, classic American automobiles or otherwise. It's what we do most nights from seven to eight on wforadio.com or on iTunes. I'll be happy to come on anytime you want. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for calling in. Bye, Robert. Okay. Cool. 
Hey, uh, I thought I uh, for you guys that just tuned in here, it's towards the end of the show, but this is Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and we're on the AM Tan Talk Radio Network, 1340, and we're just about ready to sign off. But I do want to say uh, thanks to a couple of our sponsors. I want to say hello to Jim and Sharon at Ice Cold Air Discount Auto Repair, downtown Clearwater. Their number is 461-5727. They're at A1180 Court Street. And uh, they still got their 1995 oil change going on and their free oil or their free AC inspection. So uh, give them a call down there. Say hi to Sharon and Jim. I want to say hi to my friends down at Krabby's Beach Walk Bar and Grill. And uh, Turtle, you're down there. You're listening, hopefully. Their number is 727-210-0988. That's on Clearwater Beach. That's Krabby's Beach Walk Bar and Grill. Bro's Pizza, they're going to bring us out a pizza tonight, but we uh, got something else planned. So uh, we're going to have them bring us a pizza next week. And they're, they're downtown. Great pizza by the box, by the slice, 441-6025. And I want to say a big hello to Pete up there at Magnolia Valley Golf Club in Newport Ritchie. That's for all you golfers up there and car guy, car guy, golfer guys. You know, take your high rod out on the golf cart track. Now, they might not let you do that. But anyway, their number seven two seven eight four seven two three four two. 727-847-2342. That's uh, 727-847-2342. That's Magnolia Valley Golf Club in Newport Ritchie. And, of course, hey, Lefty. I hope you're doing a good job down there towing all those cars off Clearwater Beach that uh, don't belong there. But everybody else, uh, her number is 447-1952. And not only does she do impounds, but she also tow your car, too. So give her a call over there. How are we doing on time? Oh, yeah. One more thing. Hey, we got for all you listeners out there that are used to listening to our show, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, stay tuned. We're going to be back in about 15 minutes. we got a new radio show that we're trying. It's a pilot show. It's Beach Radio, okay? And we're going to be talking about Clearwater Beach, stuff's going on on the beach, little car stuff maybe, so hang in there, and uh, we'll see you guys back here in about 10, 15 minutes, okay? At the Tan Talk Radio Network, AM 1340. Five minutes? Okay, thanks for tuning in. You know the day destroys the night Night divides the day Try to run 